Talk about it. The WERU radio program that is conversations about domestic abuse. I am your host, Patricia McLean, founder and president of Finding Our Voices, the grassroots, Maine based nonprofit organization marshalling survivor voices and faces to help women and girls recognize, avoid, safely leave, and heal from dangerous relationships. And now, let's talk about it. So, Carrie, thank you for um, sitting down with me. Yes. And just maybe introduce yourself, however you want to do it. Yeah, sure. So, uh, my name is Dr. Carrie Bowman. I am a pharmacist. And we met on Facebook. Yes, we did. So, Carrie, let's start from the beginning. What was your life like when you met him? So, um, we were high school sweethearts. Um, so we met in high school, we were together all through high school and college. Can you tell me about what he was like when you met him? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so he was, you know, he seemed very nice, um, but there were some off-putting behaviors even then. Um, whenever I would go out in the hallway, he always seemed to be out there, almost like he was stalking me. Um, he used to playfully joke that he was stalking me. Um, and it, you know, I, I wouldn't necessarily say it was love bombing, but he definitely took up a lot of my time and um, it made it difficult to spend time with some of my other friends. Was he popular? He was popular, yes, but not a very good student. And what kind of student were you? I was top of my class. I graduated valedictorian and oh, got wow. an almost full scholarship to pharmacy school right out of high school. Oh, wow. And what did your family think of him? Um, they weren't too impressed, but I'm known for being rather stubborn. So honestly, if they tried to talk me out of it, I don't know if I would have listened since I was only 16 at the time. He was your age? Uh, no, he was about three years older. So uh, high school, and then what happened after high school? Uh, after high school, I went on to pharmacy school, which is a pretty rigorous six-year program. Um, he was in and out of community college, in and out of jobs, and we got married towards the end of college. Did you have any doubts about marrying him? Yes. 
Oh, what were they? Um, I, I think I had doubts because that was the only relationship I'd had at that point, and I was concerned that you know maybe it wasn't as healthy as I hoped, or that maybe things wouldn't work out. Um, you know, he had an awful lot of potential, and at the time, I didn't understand that you don't marry someone for their potential. Um, and unfortunately, it, as it turned out, he didn't live up to any of his promise. And what were, so you were, pharmacy school, you were on a clear path. What was his path? Um, even back then, he planned to stay home with the kids. He didn't have a close relationship with his dad at the time, and he wanted to make sure that he had one with our children. So he was planning to stay, be a stay-at-home dad. Stay-at-home dad? That young? Yep. So he didn't have any career in mind? No. You didn't have, even have kids yet? That's correct. <laughs> so he wasn't in school? No, he went into community school. Um, community college, ended up dropping out, worked a couple of odd jobs here and there, and the plan was that he was going to keep working while I finished pharmacy school to support us because we got married um, my last year. Was he supportive of you being in pharmacy school? Yes, he was supportive of me being in school. Um, you know, it was pretty clear how much income I would be able to bring in, so he was very supportive of that. Um, but once I started working and he saw what the schedule was like, he became a little less supportive of me being out of the home so much. And then when did you have your first child? Oh, goodness. Um, how, how old were you when you had your first child? Goodness, I think about 27. Mm -hmm. um, and that's really when everything shifted. Oh, what happened? Um, he became a lot more controlling. Um, I think having children started to re-trigger some of the childhood trauma he claimed to have. And he became very controlling. Um, when my firstborn was born... He wouldn't let anyone else hold him except me. Uh, he wouldn't let any of the grandparents hold them, hold him. He was um, very particular about what kind of diapers we used and what kind of bottle. And if someone didn't do it correctly, then we just had to leave and go back home, wherever we were, hmm. back to where it was safe. And would you have fights? Yeah, we had fights even then. Was it about the controlling nature? Um, it, indirectly, yes. Um, at the time it was more that we didn't, couldn't seem to agree on how to do anything. And he had a lot of really odd ideas and he would try to convince me that they were normal ideas. So I should go along with them. And we had a lot of arguments about things like that. Do you remember any of Um, when the kids were older, for example, he thought it would be acceptable to give them a small glass of beer at dinner when they were two or three. Two and, uh-huh. <laughs> And, you know, I like older, I felt like 15 or something. No, no, no. Two or three. And I argued with him that that was not appropriate. He would not listen to me and kept doing it in front of me. And it was eventually my father who got through to him and got him to stop doing that. Oh, my God. And so could you just continue on about the relationship? Sure. Um, so, like I said, the controlling behaviors became to come out more now that he had something to do you know he still wasn't doing anything around the house I was working full-time so you had a full-time job now mm -hmm. I had a full-time job as a pharmacist full-time what would you like starting what time ending what time so um, retail pharmacy is all different hours but I would work anywhere from a 10 to 12 hour shift and I was pulling in about 40 hours a week um, I did all the cleaning um, <clears throat> Uh, if I had the day off, I did all the child care, all the cleaning, all the cooking. Um, and he just didn't get anything done. 
other than spending time with our children. And while that is important, there's more to keeping a house and a marriage going than just watching the children play. Did you, were you okay with that arrangement? No. Or did you want him to go to work? Very quickly, I was not okay with the arrangement. I wanted him to at least get a part-time job, hoping that eventually we could transition to something more equitable. But he just, there was always an excuse why he couldn't. Uh, I put him through photography school and bought him a whole bunch of equipment, and he never did anything with that. He pretty much immediately decided he didn't like to do portraits or weddings, which is pretty much the most profitable um, jobs for part-time photographers. So that fizzled out. And there were a couple other career ideas he had that I agreed to fund, and then nothing ever happened of them. I never got any money. We never got any money out of that. Would you have wanted to work fewer hours if he had picked up some? Absolutely. Was money tight so that you had to work all those hours? Money was tight. I actually picked up extra shifts because oh. he kept spending my money as fast as it came in. We'll talk about that. Yeah, so I still don't know where it went. You know, things like he would spend too much on video games. You know, we had a pretty strict budget we were trying to stick to. He would just go to the grocery store and buy whatever he wanted, come home with bags and bags of stuff, like double what we would have should have spent, and just, you know, kind of shrug at me and say, well, we needed all of this. Almost to like just, he's just trying to prod you. It sounds like he's just trying to poke you. Yeah. It sounds to me that's what it is. In fact, we, we, for the longest time, I didn't include him in the budgeting because he insisted that a month was not a real measure of time. So you couldn't even create a monthly budget? No, because the month wasn't real. So um, was it more and more stress on you? Yes, it became increasingly stressful, especially the more children I had. And how many more children did you have? Uh, two more. So and three and five years. And then how did that... Did you go to work right away after the children? Um, I stayed home for three months with each of them. And by that point, we would have exhausted, we exhausted all of their funds and, you know, maternity leave available. And I had to go back and start making money again. So I had to leave them with him. And were you telling him more and more that you wanted him to get to work? Yes. And he just kept pushing it off, making excuses, and nothing ever happened. There was always a reason why he couldn't. And he was not working as he was spending your money like wildfire. Yes. So this was led me increasingly to believe that even if I wanted to separate, there was no way I'd be able to afford childcare because it didn't seem like I was making enough money. Because mm. when you were with him, you just weren't making enough money for a babysitter. You didn't right. have any extra money. And I didn't so have any extra. So is that part of why you stayed? That is definitely part of why I stayed. I did not think I could afford childcare on my own. And looking at the power and control wheel, how else would, he, would you say that he was abusive? Oh, goodness. Um, so many ways. He would um, yell at me in the kitchen for hours till I was caught curled up in a ball on the floor. If the kids came in to see what was going on, he would say, go back in the other room. Mom and I are having a conversation where a normal person, if they saw their partner bunched up in a ball on the floor, would probably stop and say, are you okay? No empathy. But it was always my fault that I never told him to stop. He said that he would say that? Yes. Afterwards, you mean? Yes. He would say, I should have told him to stop yelling at me or that I needed a break from the conversation. And what was it? What would he be haranguing you about for hours about? Just, it was a different thing every day. It was usually about how unsupported he felt, how unappreciated he was, how I didn't appreciate anything he did around the house, but didn't actually do anything around the house other than babysit the children. Um, 
you know, how I wouldn't support him in anything he wanted to do. I wouldn't support him to get a job, even though I was begging him to get one. Um, how did you feel about on your drive home? What were you? What was that like? I no dreaded one? coming home, and I always felt I felt awful about dreading coming home because my children were home. I shouldn't feel. I shouldn't dread seeing my children, and I didn't dread seeing them. I dreaded coming back in the house and walking on eggshells again until I was able to leave. And talking about walking on eggshells, what was that over? Just, I could never make him happy. If I did the dishes for him, he complained that I didn't hold him accountable for doing his end of the work, and I'd screwed up. If I went and asked him to do the dishes, he would say, I'm not going to do that right now. You just got home. We're going to spend time together. I'll do it later. And three days later, they'd still be in the sink. And there just was no way to make him happy. And then how was he feeling about the hours that you were working? Um, he thought I was working too many hours. He thought I should be at home more, spending more time with the children. He was constantly trying to make me feel guilty that I didn't spend enough time with them, even though I would spend my entire day off going to the grocery store, taking them to all their doctor's appointments, scheduling all their appointments. I took them to all their aftercare activities. He made me schedule my work around their after-school activities so that I could take them. He wouldn't take them. I took them. So I was just flat out 24-7, and I was exhausted. And plus he was haranguing you and guilting you. Yes. And, yeah. He would give me a look when I would say something, and he would just go, you don't really believe that, do you? And after a while, I started to doubt myself. I really started to doubt myself around him. You were so doing so well, and he wasn't doing anything, but yet did he make you feel like you were inadequate? Yes. He made me feel like I didn't care about him. Mm, so you were constantly having to prove that you did. Yes. I was having to prove that I was trying to make this work, that I did care, but nothing that I did proved it to him. Mm, that sounds familiar. And so then how did things progress from there? Well, once we moved up to Maine a few years ago, we moved away from all my extended family and his, and things got progressively worse from Whose there. Whose idea was it to move to Maine? Uh, both of ours. Um, I have one aunt up here who I'm very close with and I desperately wanted to get away from retail and I found the great job that I have now um, and I really wanted it so we decided to take the jump up here before my oldest started kindergarten. That seemed like the best time to go um, but unfortunately once we got up here his trauma just went to a whole new level and um, he hated my new schedule even more. I think he hated that I was happy and enjoying my job now. Um, I could never have anyone over to the house because it was never clean. And I just couldn't invite these new moms over that I wanted to make friends with. It's such a filthy house. You know, it kind of looked like an episode of Hoarders, to be honest. Because his, you didn't have the time to clean it up and he just kept messing it up? Yeah. Well, plus three kids. Oh, yeah, of and course. And they didn't have to clean up after themselves, so... So when you'd come home and the house would be a mess? The house would be a disaster. And when you've tried to tell him about that? He would say, leave, he would say, leave me alone. I've been taking care of the kids all day. So you were not happy. I was very unhappy. Did you think about leaving? I did, but I just couldn't see how. In fact, I started therapy shortly after I left here, and my therapist's main goal was to try to help me to figure out how to leave. And every time we talked about it, I just got so overwhelmed. 
I would just say, I, I can't do this right now. I can't do this right now. I just, if I just tough it out a little bit longer, I'm sure it'll get better. He just needs more time. It's going to get better. You know, you promise for better or for worse. I guess this is just worse. Mm. And then what, what happened when your anus was getting worse? In what way was it getting worse? Um, so we started couples counseling in an attempt to make things better. And that just progressed the emotional abuse even further. Um, the therapist was did not recognize this was an abusive relationship. Mm. I was not really aware that that's what was going on. Mm -hmm. And so every time we would go into a session and she would try to get me to open up about what was bothering me, then as soon as we got back in the car afterwards is when he would let into me about whatever I'd brought up. I can't believe you told her that. That's not true. You don't really believe that, do you? I try and I try. Nothing is ever good enough for you. And he would just, the whole half an hour home, over and over and over until I couldn't breathe or I was crying. And I hate it. I would have panic attacks just thinking about going every week. Was he the one that wanted to go to, to public therapy? Yep. And he wouldn't let me quit. And then, um, and then what happened? Well, that went on for about a, a year. And towards the end of that, he had his first, um, for lack of a better word, psychotic break. Um, we had an argument. He was looking for the cold medicine, couldn't find it. So I just got up and handed it to him because you're both not feeling well. And <clears throat> then he started yelling at me. Why couldn't you just tell me where it is? Well, you'd, you'd have to get up and, and hurl it at me. I didn't throw it at him. I just handed it to him. And I tried to go back in my room and go back to sleep. And he turned the lights back on and kept yelling at me. So I moved to the living room, turned off the lights, tried to go to sleep. It was 10, 11 o'clock at night at this point. I was exhausted came into the living room, turned the lights back on, started screaming at me again. So, I'm, so I try to escape the living room and I head towards my son's room and he kind of like stops me in the hall with his hands up on the wall, just really intimidating and threatening looking and he's a good foot on me. And I was he so, said what? He's a good foot taller okay, than yeah. me. And I was really scared so I slapped him. You know, I thought like, you know, in the movies you slap someone and they come to their senses. Well, that right. doesn't actually happen in real life but... The look he got in his face then, the anger and the fire in his eyes, I ran into my son's room and I curled up in bed behind him and he yelled for another minute from the doorway, but he wouldn't quite, he wouldn't cross the threshold. He wouldn't quite bring himself to cross that line and he left the room and I could hear him pacing the kitchen, muttering, muttering for hours and I was afraid to get up, but I had to pee so bad. <laughs> So eventually I got up, went to the bathroom, it was almost 6 a.m. and I snuck into the kitchen to see what had happened. And the scene that I saw when I came out there, he had taken a Sharpie and written all over the floor and the appliances and the door, will you listen to me now? He had written all over my desk, he smashed a banana into it, he took my favorite cookbook and dumped it all over the kitchen. Dumped it, what do you mean? It's a, it's a binder, oh, okay. so he like flung the pages everywhere. Um, he wrote on my bedroom door, profanity. Um, he peed in my shoes. He peed in your shoes? He peed in my shoes. Oh my God, had he ever done anything close to that before? No. This is completely... No, this was, I was terrified. I had no idea what was happening to him, to my life, what was going on. I called the crisis line um, and because he did, wasn't trying to hurt himself or anyone else, I couldn't get him out of the house. So 
I took him to his doctor. I took him to his therapist. And they basically said, no, you don't have to go in anywhere. They didn't find anything wrong with him. No, they thought there was something wrong, but not threatening to the public. Okay. And how about not threatening to the public? How about threatening to you when he's peeing um, in your shoes for goodness sake? So the, the doctor that he sees is also my doctor. And she was very concerned. And as soon as he was out of earshot, she pulled me into her office at the end of the appointment and said, do you feel safe at home? Mm. I said, I do not. She goes, you need to pack a bag and put it in your trunk. And that was when I started to figure out that this was a lot worse than I thought it was. Mm. That maybe this wasn't, we're having a hard time. Mm -hmm. And then what happened after that? He came back home and we made it three more months and everything exploded for good. Um, we got into a fight one morning. We were getting ready for our middle child's preschool graduation. Um, we were in the bedroom getting ready. My youngest was in there with me watching the cars go by. Um, my husband um, asked for sex before we left and I said, absolutely not. And he got very upset, threw himself on the bed like an angry, sullen teenager, threw his glasses on the bed, and my youngest child stepped on them accidentally. He started screaming at him, the top of his lungs, at my little three-year-old. And I said, you stop yelling at him right now. And he says, I'll talk to him however I effing want to. And I said, not in front of me. And I said, we're not talking anymore until your voice is as calm as mine. And I scooped my little one up and headed out to the car to go to the, the graduation. And he followed me all the way out to the car, screaming, F you, F this, F that. We get in the car. I've got my youngest buckled. He's banging on the windshield. He's banging on the side of the car, screaming at both of us. Oh and I just pull out as quick as I can. And I somehow made it through that graduation. I'm still not sure how. With a smile screwed on my face. Brought them home. Stuck my head in the door because I had to go to work after that. And he seemed very calm, very chill. So I left the kids here and went to work. And he proceeded to send me roughly 200 text messages on my eight-hour shift all about his feelings and everything I had done wrong to him that day and how I never listened to anything and how I'm being abusive by being silent to him. And just a very long list of complaints. And I asked him multiple times to stop. And he said, no, I'm going to get this all off my chest right now. Even though I was at work, working to support him and our family to make sure we have food on the table, he wouldn't stop harassing me. Eventually turned my phone off and prayed that there wouldn't be an emergency. And I came home. You didn't want to turn your phone off in case something was wrong with the kids. Well, exactly. But he wouldn't stop texting me. Um, so I came home that night. You must night. be like a nervous wreck. Yeah, I... I, st I don't know how I made it through that shift. I, it Did was very difficult. Did anybody ever comment that you were upset, that you seemed upset? or No, I was very good at keeping all that tamped down. And, and did your, uh, were your parents aware that there were problems? Yes. Um, my mom actually moved up here a year after us because she was had definitely noticed that there were issues and she figured it was going to implode at some point in the oh. future. Which, did she help you by being here? Yes. She helped me very much. And so then just, I'm sorry, but just continue what you were saying. Yes. Um, so I came in the door that night and he was sitting in the living room 
with glue and a clamps working on one of my dresser doors. I had a wardrobe at the time. Um, it was not broken when I left the house that morning. So there was no reason for him to be with it in the other room. So I go in my bedroom and my middle child is asleep in our bed and there is a sledgehammer on the bottom of the bed near his feet. Near your child's feet. Near my child's feet. You are listening to Let's Talk About It, a WERU radio program that is conversations about domestic abuse. I am the host, founder, and president of the Maine-based nonprofit organization, Finding Our Voices, which can be found at findingourvoices.net. Let's return now to my conversation with Carrie, who is a pharmacist living in Southern Maine. And I walk in, and I'm looking around, and there's sheetrock crumbs on the floor in the corner. And I look up, and there's new pictures on the wall. And I take them down, and there are these big, gaping holes in the wall on my side of the room, from what I can only assume is the sledgehammer at the end of the bed. And my dresser door is missing, ripped clean off. And I stuck my head back out the door and said, good night, I'm going to sleep and locked myself in, took a whole bunch of pictures, and hoped I'd wake up in the morning because I had nothing left in me at that point and I needed to get some sleep first. I just had nothing left. I got up in the morning and I was like, oh, well, that was a really awful day. I'm so glad it's over. And I just prepared to move about my life. And um, I called my dad for some reason that morning and I was telling him all about it and he goes, I don't think, I think there's something going on. This, this, that's not okay. That's really bad what happened yesterday. I was like, well, you know, we have our good days and our bad days. And he wasn't very satisfied with that answer. And then the next thing I know, within a few minutes, my mother's calling me. And she says, I want you to pack a bag because you're not going back there. Wow. You're leaving today. Wow. And I was like, I don't really know if I need to do that. She's, you're leaving today. This, this is it. This, you need to get out now. And it finally clicked in my head that the next time he was going to take the sledgehammer to my head. Did he ever threaten you to hurt? Did he ever threaten that he was going to hurt you? No. But I but, no longer believed that he wouldn't after that incident. Yeah. And it was, seems like it was getting worse. Yes. I mean, that was two incidents in six months, unlike anything that had happened previously in our right. relationship. And it was increasingly violent. Mm-hmm. Um. So he, he wasn't home at that point. He had gone to my son's graduation. Um, he had two graduations, two days in a row. So he was off there. I was home alone. I drove into work kind of in a daze, still not sure what I was going to do. And when I got to work, I was like, no, this, this is how I can't do this anymore. This is happening today. We're going to, we're, you're doing it. So I ran in there, told them I wasn't like, told them I couldn't work my shift and that there was something going on at home. And I ran out and then I, went to the lawyer that I was going to hire and dropped a check off and said, I'll be calling you later today. And then I came back home, emptied everyone's dressers, put everything I could think of in a bag to go to my mom's apartment with the three boys. Where was he? He was still at the graduation. Okay. I drove very fast. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I go meet them at the graduation. My two youngest ones are there. My oldest is in school for the day. And, you know, he's suspicious that I'm there and I kind of just said, oh, I wasn't feeling well. You know, yesterday was really rough. They agreed that I could just have the day off. And he was like, okay, but I could tell he was suspicious. 
So I sit there through the whole thing. And when we go to leave, I already moved their car seats into my car. And I said, I'm going to drive. I said, I'd like them to ride with me. I didn't get to see them much yesterday. And he was arguing with me. He didn't want them in my car. He thought the other car was safer. Um, but I finally convinced him to let me take the two youngest children. And then I drove straight to my son's school. And I locked them in the car and I ran in the building. I said, I need you to get my son out of class right now. We have a family emergency. And within five minutes, we were out the door. And according to them, he showed up not three minutes behind me after I left. Wow. And then I took all three. I didn't even have a car seat for my oldest, but I just buckled him in because the police station was two minutes away. And I'm like, just, just sit here. And they're like, Mom, what's going on? I'm like, I'm, I can't tell you. I can't tell you. We just need to go to the police station right now. And they were, they were scared, but they came with me. I wanted to protect them as much as I could from what was about to happen. So we, we park at the police station. I bring them all in the lobby with me. I, and I go up to the counter. And I was intending to tell them, you know, I just want you to know I'm not kidnapping my kids. I'm going to my mom's house until we sort things out. But what I actually told them was I need to report domestic violence. What, what, why did that phrase come to your mind? I still don't know. Because it wasn't until after that that I really put all the pieces together and was able to understand what had happened to me. And I still don't know where that came from. But it was true. But I don't know where. That's not what I meant to say when I opened my mouth. Hmm. It's almost like you knew, but you're subconsciously you knew, but you hadn't yeah. yet. Yeah. I think so. And then... Um, the whole time I was there, you know, he, I hadn't come home with the kids. He knew something was up. He's texting me, harassing me, and finally threatened to tell the police that I was suicidal if I wouldn't tell him where the children were. And I mean, I was scared and I just finally was just like, well, I'm at the police station already, so you don't need to call them because I was afraid of what he would say to them. And then I walked back over to the dispatcher. I'm like, just so you know, I just told him where I was. Because I, I didn't know what to do when you've left me out here for a while. Oh, because you've been waiting, waiting, waiting. I've been waiting and waiting and waiting for an officer. How long have you been waiting for? Ah, uh, goodness. I think I was out there maybe half an hour. Had you, would you, would you, did you keep checking in and saying, what's taking so long? No, I mostly just sat there shaking, um, trying to keep my kids from tearing up the lobby. <laughs> That's not good that they kept you waiting that long. Was that surprising to you? It was. I really thought I would get taken back there a lot quicker. Mm. Um once I told them that, they kind of freaked out and started moving, and they had someone coming at, walking out just as he walked into the lobby. Mm. And I remember he came in and he said, are we really going to do this? And I took a big step back, and I had my arms back like I was protecting the kids behind me. And that's when the officer walked out and headed him right off and marched him upstairs. Oh, good. Um, Thank God for that. Yeah. And then they finally took me back. And I really wish that somebody could have taken the kids so that they didn't have to sit and listen to my testimony. Mm. They just handed my kids coloring books. Mm. It would be nice if they said, could we take them to the other room? And then, yeah. Yeah. Because I can tell you, when I started talking, they were not coloring. Oh. They were staring at me. Oh. How old was your oldest? Uh, at the time, he probably would have been seven. Oh, yeah. They take everything in. Did it prevent you from saying certain things? No. No, once I started talking, that was that. And I had my phone with me. I had pictures on my phone of everything from June. And I had actually taken pictures back in March. Um, but that was with the intent of showing his doctor, like, what had happened. So I could help him. Help him. But I had kept them. So what was the police attitude? The police, um, 
you know, they listened to everything I said. I definitely felt like they believed me. And I basically told them, I said, I don't know. I'm here because I don't know what to do. There's something wrong with him. I don't feel safe at home. I don't know what's going on. And so they went out and they chatted to themselves and they came back in. And the question they asked me is, is the dresser yours? The dresser that he broke, was that a gift to you? I said, yes, my mother gave it to me. They said, you know, was it a valuable thing? Like it was not valuable, but it was a gift. It was mine. It was not marital property. So they ended up, because they were concerned about this escalation in behavior, they arrested him for property damage. How about the sledgehammer to the wall? Did that count? No, because that was marital property. Oh, my God. That's but, not considered violent? I considered it violent. Mm -hmm. But no, that's not anywhere in any of the court stuff. Mm. Um, so they arrested him for disorderly conduct? Uh, for property damage. Property damage. And then what happened? Um, they put in his bail conditions. He could not come back to the house. That was helpful, right? It was. And they told me to go get a protection order that day because they knew he wouldn't be in there long. I think they only held him two hours. Um, and I did get a protection order that day. Did he have, he had, didn't have bail conditions of no contact? Um, he initially had, we had no contact for three weeks. And then when we went in for the first PFA, um, they, because of the minor children, I kind of got backed into a corner and where there wasn't any history of violence towards the children oh. is where I got stuck and they kind of forced me into agreeing to a contact schedule. Well, they, there's always, they always force you into agreements. That's what the other thing I don't like about the court. Yeah. That's one of the reasons, honestly, that I wanted to talk to you and share my story because I really feel like in the court that I'm being silenced because it's all about making deals. Yes. And then... Yes, agreements. And then everything's... There's no public but your, record. your story gets lost. There's no public record because you, know, you don't get a chance to say it publicly. It's just the lawyer talking and you never get to tell your story. It exactly. Never, it's never out in court. There's no transcript and it's not on the record. Right. Tell me more about that, because that's, that's very true. Uh, I mean, even right now we're working on... So this was two years ago. I am still married to him. Um, How I'm, could that be? Well, one, COVID. So we had we were scheduled for our final mediation last spring, but COVID happened, and then the court shut down for... And then no one knew when anything was opening back up, Jeez. and it was just a nightmare, and it took a whole other year just to get to the point. So... Um, Oh my God, he's been, yeah, he's been very difficult this entire time. He's harassed me this whole time. Do you but have a PFA? I have a protection order, but it allows for contact through an app to do co-parenting. Oh. Which is not so much co-parenting as me sending him reports on what the kids do every week and him sending back nothing at all. Does he, does it bother you to have to communicate him through the Yes, I'd rather not talk to him at all. Um, but you no, have to. The court order. The, the court is right now requiring me to attempt to co-parent, um, and it's mostly just him complaining about every decision I make, and telling me I haven't properly consulted him or I'm not talking to him like he's an adult or whatever the excuse of the week is. And then, did you were there some agreements that you came to that you you regret? You regret that one, right? I regret that I had to allow. I have to have contact with him. Um, what would your preference be? My preference would be no contact. But how would you arrange the child care? I would prefer to go through his parents. Mm. They're at least, they have been very civil to me throughout this whole thing. And he won't agree to that? No, he refused that too. And did you try to bring it to a judge? 
Um, we haven't been before a judge this whole time. Oh, because of COVID. Because of COVID. Um, hopefully, I'm going to have a divorce date in April. We didn't make it on the March docket, but we're scheduled for trial. So hopefully in April, we'll uh, finally get before a judge. And what, what does it mean financially, the fact that you're not divorced? I mean, I'm, there's still bills of his that I have to pay. When we separated, he ran up a bill of almost $20,000 on his credit card that he thought was a joint card, but wasn't. So the only saving grace is that I, I was never actually on the account, so I'm not liable for any of that. But he ran up about twenty, about twenty grand in uh, four months, on on his card, on his own card that you're not liable for. Yes. And were you liable to for some of his other bills? Um. Yep. He didn't have internet for a while, so he was using his cell phone like an internet and ran up some massive data charges that I had to pay. You had to pay because the phone's in your name? Phone's in my name. As, um, as everything else. Because as everything else. But everything. I've now uh, figured out how to turn off his data if he goes too high. So. Oh. And what is the other annoying thing about still being divorced? Is it not being divorced yet? Uh, I mean, I can't. I feel like I'm in some kind of limbo. You know, it's been two years. I don't even have a final custody order yet. I really want to move out of the same town because he lives a mile from me and I can't go to the grocery store in town because he works there and his coworkers are not nice to me. And they've been harassing one of my friends. So I really would like to live somewhere else. Um, I'd really like to somewhere else move on. Yeah. But you can't? Not now because of the house. We haven't agreed on what to do with the house yet. Is it this house? Yes. And did, it sounds like you must have paid for it. Um, the Both of our names are on the mortgage, and I've put a considerable amount of money into it in the last two years, repairing all the damage to it, holes in the wall that I found. That he, also, he didn't contribute anything financially to the marriage, it sounds like. No, he did not. But unfortunately, that's not how the judge views it. And why did you put his name on it? Do you remember how that happened? At the time, I thought it was the right thing to do. It was joint property that we were going to own together. It was going to build both of our credits. It seemed like what you would do in a partnership. And so things are just in limbo. Yeah. I really hate being in limbo. It's been almost two years of limbo. And my kids have been in limbo for two years. And it's really unfair to them as well. And how is it, how is it affecting them? Uh, I mean, they definitely act out sometimes. They do a pretty good job. Um, really, they've been so resilient. I really expected a lot worse, given everything that they, you know, the fights that they'd witnessed, um, everything they heard in the police station that day. You know, I really just expected a lot more behavioral incidents than we really had. You're not going to have to give them any alimony, are you? Um, I believe once we deduct all of the child care expenses that he has to contribute towards, there won't be anything left for alimony. I pay for everything for them right now, just like I always have. You pay for everything? Yes, I don't get any money from him right now. I pay for all of the childcare, all of their food, all of their clothes, all of their school activities, school photos. How about when he's with them, though? No. But, but how, could, how could it be that he didn't have to, he's not ordered to contribute? Is it because the... the... They decided that the amount of alimony I would owe him was more than what he owed in child care but unfortunately once COVID happened child care costs doubled and tripled for me and I've been unable to get anyone to adjust the child support number since then it's been over a year I can't get anyone to adjust the child support number so I did eventually stop paying him alimony I told him I couldn't afford it anymore he's gonna have to figure out how to manage without it so because he was a deadbeat 
and you supported him through your marriage mm -hmm. meant that you have to support him after your marriage. That makes no sense. I agree. It does make no sense. He should be. He should be having to pay you. He should be he, having to get a job and yeah. have to pay you back for all the money you paid him. He really should. But right now, he's content to work part time at Hannaford. Oh my God. Um, and so you found somebody. You have somebody else in your life. Yes, I do. And what is the difference? Well, let me just put, let me just set it up a different way. <laughs> so you were you were afraid to leave him. You know, you knew you weren't happy, but. You were you were afraid. Was it? Would you say you were afraid to leave him, or what was going on all that time and you didn't leave? I don't think at that point I was afraid of him. I was afraid later. I was afraid of him, but initially when I was you know really wanted to leave, I wasn't afraid of him. I was afraid that I wouldn't be able to support my children. You didn't think you could make it on your own. No, I really didn't. You know, and I'm I'm a pharmacist. I I have a good income. And I still didn't think I could support myself and three children and keep a roof over our heads. And so what, what, what ended up being the case, actually, after you left? Um, actually, now that, that he's gone and I'm paying for far more than I was, I actually have more in savings than I ever did when we were together. So I don't know where all that money was going, but I am much more financially secure now is the irony of it all. Thank God you got out. I'm so grateful I was able to get away from him. And then what is the difference with the, your new boyfriend? Oh, um, <laughs> sorry. Um, <laughs> he's quite lovely. Um, he's very kind and he is very, very gentle man. Um, and I know he would never even raise his voice at me. Uh, and he's employed, so that's a plus. <laughs> And he's just, is he supportive of you and what you want to do? He is so supportive of me. In fact, you know, when Eliza asked me to come on as vice president of Safe House, at the time I was like, oh, it's so early. I just got out. I don't know if I can do this. And he looked at me and he said, you've got to do this. You can totally do this. And if it wasn't for him, I wouldn't have joined. And what is it you, why did you join Safe, Safe House? Can you just tell me a few things? Tell us about Safe House. Yes. So Safe House is a nonprofit and we've developed an app for people in crisis. It covers all kinds of crisis, um, sexual assault, uh, human trafficking, child abuse, domestic violence. Um, and basically it's, it's a, an automatic dialer for you. So we have all of the resources on there, websites and phone numbers. And all you do is find your state, find your county, tap on it, the number is loaded and you call and then you're talking to someone over there to get help. They connect you right away with the person. Mm -hmm. So that way you don't have to go online and try to figure out what services are in your area, who you're supposed to be calling, yeah, it's all calls. in there. Yes, and it definitely can be endless calls when you're in that situation. And it's just, it's one more thing you don't need when you're in crisis. Because when you're in crisis, you just, you're so traumatized, like mm -hmm. you can, it's so hard to do anything. It is. Our goal is to get cell phone companies to include this in the software that they preload on your phone be because amazing. we think that crisis response should be as essential as a calculator. Absolutely. And so you're working full-time and you're doing that? Of course. <laughs> and raising my children by myself. Right. And um, what would you like to see, what changes would you like to see made from your experience? Well, I think there's a lot of changes to be made. I mean, for one, um, temporary protection orders are not logged into the database that prevents you from buying a gun. So 
Um, it's considered, uh, that aspect is voluntary. Permanent orders are not, but temporary orders, it's voluntary for each state whether or not they want to participate, and Maine has opted out. Oh my goodness, that's horrible. So I've had a temporary protection order for almost two years. Because of COVID. Because of COVID. So at any point, he could go out and buy a gun, and he'd only get in trouble if he got caught. He would not come up on any databases. Mm. I find that very concerning for someone who is mentally unstable, like I presume him to be. Right. So that's like a loophole with the guns, it sounds mm -hmm. like. So I, I think that's something that needs to be tightened up. Um, I think that we need to get... Um, emotional abuse recognized as domestic violence mm. because th what therapists consider domestic violence and the general public is a much bigger net than what main state law considers to be domestic violence. Mm. So I think we need to broaden it to include um, emotional abuse, coercive control, financial abuse. It needs to be a wider net. It's not catching everyone. And what would you say that the control of of you? What, what, what were the, what were the ways that he controlled you? Um, he controlled me financially, um, emotionally. Um, In what way emotionally? Did he isolate you? He, you know, he isolated me. He uh, really drove me away from a lot of my friends. He um, had a very loud social media personality. And a lot of the crazy stuff he said, I had friends who were like, look, I don't want you around. I don't want him around my kids, so you guys just can't come over anymore. And that was heartbreaking. I mean, these were people I'd known for years. And I was suddenly, you know, persona non grata and not allowed to see their kids or them anymore. And that was really hard. At one point, he was convinced, you know, when my mom was like the only one living around us up here, he was convinced that she was the problem. He told me I couldn't have my mother come over to the house anymore because she wasn't being respectful. And did you stop not see her as much because of that? I didn't know what to do. So I told him that I would, and I ended up just taking the kids to her house without him and visiting her there until that died down and I could have her over again. Mm -hmm. Um when you got out, did you realize that it, it you were unhappier or it was worse than you even thought when you were in it? Yeah. I the, Those three weeks where I had no contact with him, I felt so free. I slept so good. And I didn't feel like I was walking on eggshells in my own house anymore. And the kids were so happy. Everyone was just happy. It's only when you were away that you realized how bad it was. Yeah. You needed that time and space. I did. And I knew I would never go back to him. Never. What would you say to anybody who isn't stuck in a relationship where they're just walking on eggshells, feel beaten down, afraid? I would say you can get out. Even if you don't think you can, because I didn't think I could, you can. People will, you will find people to help you and to support you. There are resources out there. There are people who will help you when you try to leave. And... I know I was made to feel like nobody would help me and that there was no way out, but there's always a way out when you're ready to take it. Thank you, Carrie. In June, Finding Our Voices is breaking the silence in Waldo County in a big way, with an exhibit in Belfast downtown windows and in business windows in other Waldo County towns as well, of local art and poetry to the theme, What's Love Got to Do With It?
one of the works of art that will open people's eyes, minds, and hearts to the domestic abuse all around us is a very powerful poem by Elizabeth Garber, and it gives me great pleasure to present Elizabeth reading her poem. The poem I uh, created for the Finding Our Voices, and it's a story that I've written in a memoir. It's an event that happened 50 years ago this year. Wow. Wow. Yeah, when I was 18. An anniversary, jeez. I will risk everything to free us. All I have to do is kill my father. Oh, my God. Then the yelling will stop. I am 18 when I decide. All I have to do is surrender my life to free us. Once I know this is all I have to do, I'm light, almost peaceful. Touch the sharp steel blades in the kitchen. Then the yelling will end. It doesn't matter, I will go to jail. I make lists, all the books I could read there. I sleep, set the table, clear the dishes, live in a razor-sharp beam of anger, happy. I will set us free from this nightmare. I will find the space between the bones, find his heart. I am invincible, unstoppable, riding this angel of fury to free us. My fury, my very own, just discovered, just allowed, just released anger will save us. Yet something happens. My family stands frozen in the kitchen. My mother, brothers, and me, a family portrait. And he lectures, threatens, sweat streaks his face. My hands edge towards the drawer of knives when something happens. We all turn. We all face him. Our eyes unify in fury. Our eyes say, this is enough. We are done. No one says a word, no longer his hostage. He collapses, chest shuddering, gasping, pitifully broken, struggling on the linoleum floor. One by one, we walk away. No one has to die or kill to free us. I never pick up the knife. I stop being the girl who sacrifices my life to save my family. I become a girl who saves herself. Wow, thank you. <clears throat> There's so much more I, I heard in this in this <clears throat> in, in the poem this time. One of the things was find his heart. Mm. Mm. And then his heart is what gave way when we turned and just went with our vision, said, we're not going to do this anymore. We're not going to just keep living um, in this craziness. And we walked away. It was it was an extraordinary moment. Did, but, did, is that literally you're talking about? It literally happened. It literally, I was going to kill my father. And my family was all, my mom and my brothers and I, we were all, and he was yelling and yelling. And I hadn't told anyone my plan. There was a way that, and we didn't really even talk about what happened afterwards. We just all turned and looked at him, and he collapsed on the floor. Really? Yeah, with heart arrhythmia. Oh, my goodness. And, I'd, he, and he had heart arrhythmia, and every now and then he would end up in bed, but I'd never seen him collapse like that. But it was like we all stopped being party to his controlling and madness. Mm, and the control, yeah. You slayed the dragon. Yeah. By 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 refusing to give in to, by what? How did you? How did that happen? 
What was it that unified you? <clears throat> I think we turned on him with a unified, I don't want to say hatred, but a unified no. It was just enough. It was just point. a no. Yeah, it's enough. It's over. Thank you, Elizabeth. Elizabeth Garber is a poet, writer, and acupuncturist, and she writes about her relationship with her father and how she emerged to gain understanding and freedom from his control in Implosion, Memoir of an Architect's Daughter, published in 2018. This book is available at your local bookstore, or you can order it through your local bookstore. And more of my conversation with Elizabeth will be on a future episode of this radio show. If what Elizabeth and Carrie talked about today sounds familiar, if you or someone you love is being controlled by or living in fear of a family member, say something. The statewide 24-7 domestic abuse hotline number run by the Maine Coalition to End Domestic Violence is 1-866-834-HELP. The website of Finding Our Voices a Sisterhood of Survivors, is findingourvoices.net. On the homepage, there are photo portraits of 30 survivors from all over Maine, aged 18 to 81. Click the portraits and you can hear the voices and stories. The music for this radio program is by Roan Yellowthorn. R-O-A-N-Y-E-L-L-O-W-T-H-O-R-N, a.k.a. Jackie McLean Strack, who grew up in Camden and is my daughter. Jackie and I talked about the domestic abuse she experienced growing up in our home in last month's episode of this radio program that is archived on the WERU website. Her new CD on Blue Elan Records is called Acid Trip, and the song that is ending this radio program is the latest single from that CD, it would be familiar to everyone who has had their lifeblood sucked out of them by someone they gave their heart to. Thank you, Jackie. Thank you, Elizabeth and Carrie. And thank you for listening, because if there are no voices to hear, our voices don't go far. Until next time, take care of yourself. And remember, love should feel good. Like you.
never hurt, no ropes can ever hold me, I always will escape.